You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Amaria Walsh from University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled Countess Alice Barrymore, Motherhood, Shopping and the Commodification of English Civility. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, if Countess Alice Neboyle Barrymore was alive today, I think she would be a Brexit supporter. <laughs> <laughs> All of the attributes which we might associate with the Brexiteer are evident in the self-narrative which Alice constructed through the medium of her letters. During the early years of her marriage, Alice used her Boyle inheritance to build an enormous English-styled manor house in County Cork. As mistress of that household, she stocked the larder with English foodstuffs. As a noble countess, she employed an English gentlewoman as her closest servant companion. And as the mother of two sons, she controlled the direction of their education by importing tutors from England. And for her friendships and social outings, she looked once more to England. One could argue that the Brexit supporter, like Alice, is intent on asserting and protecting a notional English identity which is removed from the actual reality of their surroundings. But for the purposes of today's presentation, I would like to examine a surviving letter which Alice wrote to her friend, the upper gentry Buckinghamshire man, Sir Ralph Fernie, on the 18th of February, 1639. My reading of that letter will show how Alice portrays herself as a virtuous and loving mother, as a diligent and loyal Protestant planter, and as a wealthy and ambitious heiress through her epistolary efforts to create and sustain a little England in her marital home of Castle Lines in County Cork. This brief case study focusing on Alice Barrymore arises out of my PhD project, which looks at the 17th century Boyle women and the different ways in which they wrote their lives as aristocratic Protestant New English women who were born on and enriched by Irish soil. I now want to give you a brief outline of the letter and some background detail. Alice's objective in writing was to ask Ralph to contact his father, the courtier, Sir Edmund Verney, requesting that he recommend a suitable tutor who would travel to Ireland and help prepare Alice's eight-year-old son, Richard Barry, for school in England. In a postscript to the letter, Alice tagged on a shopping list, asking that the addressee also procure and dispatch to Castle Lines a number of English-sourced foodstuffs and household items, including herrings, vinegar and dinner plates. The letter itself is notable for its rhetorical fluency and open, easy manner, which coheres with the warm relations that appear to have existed between Alice and Sir Ralph. The friendship between the writer and the addressee can be traced to 1626, 
when Alice's father, Richard Boyle, first Earl of Cork, wrote to thank Ralph's father, Sir Edmund Verney, for offering assistance to Alice, her husband and young child during a recent visit to England. From that point on, the Boyles of Cork and the Verneys of Buckinghamshire reinvigorated their friendship every time they met during their annual trips to the Baths in the south of England or while socialising in London. In fact, Alice's 1639 letter is one in a whole series of correspondences with Sir Ralph, and what remains of those exchanges has been carefully preserved as part of 30,000 personal letters held in the Verney archives at Clayton Manor. At this point, I would like to read you a transcript of Alice's letter. Noble servant, I have been of late so much troubled with the distillation out of my head, which has fallen into my jaws and teeth, that it hath put me to very much pain, so that it doth trouble me to hold down my head, and now Pines is going to England. I must desire you to do me the favour as to write to my noble governor, that is Sir Edmund Verney, to send a good tutor for my young mister. I would have him a monsieur, one that might teach him to write, and a good garb, and that might still be with him when I send him to school. I would not have him too old, nor too young, but one of a very temperate carriage. For his wages, I refer it wholly to him for what he agrees, for I will God willing see paid. I like him so well for a governor, that is Sir Edmund Verney, for myself that I humbly desire he may choose one for my mad boy, and that he may come over with as much speed as may be, for see he is spoiled for want of one good servant. Let me desire you to write at large about this business, what you think fit, and in so doing it shall add to the numerable number of your other favours and bind me ever to remain yours, Mrs. To Command, A. Barrymore. Castle Lines, the 18th of February. I'll just read the postscripts as well for you because they're interesting. My service to my lady, that is Ralph's wife, and both my good tenants, and they were Sir John and Lady Leake who were tenants of um, Alice Barrymore's and cousins of the Verneys. Take order, the herrings and the vinegar may be sent as soon as you may, and I will see you paid. Remember my tranchers, and tranchers were dinner plates, for now I am in great need. Mary Danes goes a Monday, if you will anything, to Dublin. Faulkner, and Faulkner was the uh, gentlewoman companion to Countess Alice, who was also a kinswoman of Sir Ralph's. Writes, you shall not keep her cheese, my Lady Denton sent her, but you shall have half. The beginning of April, God willing, my dear Ellen, that is Alice's daughter, and Faulkner, with Gareth Ma, shall for England for help for her lameness, which grows much upon her. You may tell my lady so much that I must have her advice in it. I have chosen to examine this particular letter of Alice's because, besides being richly colourful and entertaining, it is also thought-provoking. Not only does the letter provide us with a rare glimpse at how one elite early modern woman perceived and sought to represent her version of her life during a time when Ireland was experiencing relative peace and prosperity, but the letter is also significant because it raises some intriguing questions which indirectly expose the crossover between letter writing and writing a life. Those questions might include, for example... Why Alice writes that she was wholly dependent on Sir Edmund to pick out a tutor for her son, when a highly sophisticated educational model had already been well established by her father, Richard Boyle. 
According to historical evidence, Alice's husband, David Barry, and her five Boyle brothers had all been home tutored and then sent off to school and university in England. Another question might consider why Alice, a wealthy noblewoman from Cork, would be interested in importing herrings when she could have afforded something far more exotic, like Cornish caviar, for example. Indeed, Nicholas Canny has reported that a thriving fishing industry existed in the 17th century around the coastal regions of Ireland, including places such as Ballymaloo, Yall, Kinsale and Ardmore. Each of those sites is located just a few short miles away from Alice's home at Castle Lines, and those so-called fishing palaces built their reputations around catching and exporting various species of herrings. For now, using all of those questions as cues, I would like to propose that Alice's letter was a highly self-conscious exercise, serving to draw wider attention to her contribution towards enlivening a cultural phenomenon which prevailed in early modern Ireland at that time. As many of you know, 16th and 17th century settlers who benefited from the plantation of Ireland, like the New English Boyles, were keen but also strongly encouraged by government to uphold an English way of living through their commitment to the Protestant faith and through their use of the English language, customs, laws and dress. In so doing, that policy worked to legitimise and strengthen the planter's title to the land in Ireland whilst also aiming to exert a civilising influence over the native Irish populace. Literary critic Kate Chedzoy has previously recommended the benefits of studying early modern women by, quote, situating it in relation to more expansive, detailed and complex cultural geographies of the period, unquote. To that end, my brief investigation will show how Alice inscribes her gender, religion, ethnicity and geography through her correspondence with Sir Ralph Fernie, in which she seeks to provide both her son with an English-centric education and her Castellines household with an English style of living. I'm now going to look at the ways in which the concept of motherhood and planting are woven together in Alice's letter. Alice's credentials as a good mother are asserted from the opening line of her letter when she discloses that she had laid aside her own discomforts, including the curiously described distillation out of her head and the pain in her jaw, in order to sit down and prioritise the composition of a letter to Sir Ralph Fernie before the bearer left for England. Without any further preamble, Alice outlines her purpose in writing by stating that she required a tutor, recommended by Ralph's father, Sir Edmund Fernie, to be sent over immediately to teach her son. Added to that, Alice provides some details as regards the type of teaching curriculum which the likely candidate would be required to follow, as well as her expectations about his demeanour, dress, morals and willingness to commit to the Barrymore family over the longer term. Now, for anyone involved in writing up a job description or applying for an academic post, (laughs) I wonder if the following outline, which has been kindly provided by Alice, chimes in any way with your own experiences. I will remind you of what Alice wrote. I would have him a monsieur, one that might teach him to write, and a good garb, and that might be with him when I sent him to school. I would not have him too old, nor too young, but one of a very temperate carriage, unquote. 
the job brief and the specificity of the terms and conditions suggests to the reader that Alice was well-versed as regards the standard and potential fault lines which characterise the contemporary tutor system. In the context of the period, a family's political-religious affiliations was reflected in their choice of where to send their son to school and university. Jane Almar has observed how, whilst it was customary for Catholic heirs to be sent to continental colleges, their Protestant counterparts opted instead for an English equivalent. Alice's decision to seek the recommendation of Sir Edmund Verney, a devout Protestant and loyal supporter of Charles I, suggests that she was intent on modelling her son in a manner which affirmed her commitment to both the Crown and the established Church. But additionally, Alice's personal aspirations are also discernible from the way in which she rooted her request, moving somewhat surprisingly outside of her own family to take advantage of the Verney's geographic and political proximity to the court of French-born Queen Henrietta Maria, who also happened to be the mother of sons with access to the best tutors and scholars in the land. Thus, Alice's authority and ambition as a mother is affirmed by enlisting the help of Ralph and his father to procure a tutor for young Richard so that he would be properly equipped to achieve his future destiny. More especially, arising out of her epistolary engagement with the Verneys, Alice works to ensure public recognition of her efforts to inculcate her son in English ways, whilst indirectly demonstrating the extent of her knowledge savviness and exacting standards by encouraging Sir Ralph and other senior members of his family to, quote, write at large about this business, unquote. I would like to turn now and look more closely at how Alice characterises the relationship with her son Richard and what that maternal role might signify set against the backdrop of early modern Ireland. Noticeably, there are several references throughout Alice's letter which hint at her motherly pride, Mention is made of Richard as my young mister and my mad boy, which reinforces in a literal sense the extent of Alice's attachment and her attitude of benevolence. As the letter reaches its conclusion, the request for a tutor is repeated, but with even greater urgency, whilst the writer also attempts to protect herself and the boy from any blame in regard to his current behaviour. A distancing effect is achieved when the writer applies a passive verbal construction, prevailing upon the addressee to ensure that once a suitable tutor had been found, quote, he may come over with as much speed as may be, for see he is spoiled for want of one good servant, unquote. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the adjective spoiled as, quote, persons, especially children, injured in character by excessive indulgence, leniency or deference, unquote. However, it is conceivable that the term spoiled might have also connoted socio-political significance in the context of the place and the period. Arguably, Alice presents her letter as a necessary and timely intervention to correct her son's deviant behaviour and to ensure that he was ready to take on the prestigious Barrymore earldom in the not-too-distant future. More fundamentally, the letter underscores Alice's civilising presence at Castellines, without whose efforts the Boyle Barry inheritance might have been permanently destroyed by the effects of the local environment on her young and seemingly innocent boy. Now, according to Alison Posca, 
the habit of chronicling both the children's development and parents' efforts to educate them was understood as a way of expressing affection in the context of the early modern period. At that time, it was also quite usual for noble women to oversee the education of their children and in many cases that of their relatives' children and members of their household. Yet, in both the letter to Ralph Verney in February 1639 and in correspondence sent to her father Richard Boyle on the 18th of August 1641, Alice gives the impression that she had taken sole charge of her children's education whilst omitting any mention of her husband and his views concerning plans for his eldest son and heir. In the letter to her father, Alice attributes her children's well-being to God and their progress to her maternal endeavours, advising that she was doing her, quote, best to bring them up in the fear of God and in all other qualities that I am able to get them taught, unquote. Observably, the insights offered in the letter to her father and in the earlier 1639 correspondence with Sir Ralph reinforce the extent to which Alice purports to rely on both her financial means as a boil heiress and her Protestant faith to enable and guide her in the performance of her duties as a good mother. I'm now going to turn to return to Alice's shopping list and how the search for English goods is used to signal much more about Alice than just her privileged existence. Like the request for the tutor, Alice is explicit in expressing to Sir Ralph her capacity to pay and her great need for the other items on her shopping list, which include herrings, vinegar and tranchers. In an attempt to spur Ralph into action, Alice advises him that a Mary Danes be in Dublin the following Monday and would be ready to collect and bring home to Castle Lines anything that Ralph had managed to ship in the interim. That proposal suggests that Alice was not only eager to get hold of the goods, but it reveals the degree to which she viewed them as an essential part of day-to-day living at Castle Lines. However, a very different perspective is presented to the reader concerning Alice's spending power in another letter which she wrote from Castle Lines on the 20th of April 1634, again to her father. On that occasion, Alice complains to Richard Boyle that she and her children were suffering daily for lack of money caused by the burden of debts attached to the lands which her husband, David Barry, had inherited. Alice makes her approach for help, requesting that her father take <coughs> over the debts by disclosing that her Barry in-laws, quote, report that I am the cause of the spending that with living after the English fashion, unquote. Counter to what the Barrys might have perceived as an insult, it appears that Alice correctly and shrewdly anticipated how the repetition of that accusation would have had the opposite effect on her father. If anything were to persuade him of the merits and assuming responsibility for the Barrys' mortgages, the mention of Alice's alleged aspirations towards living in an English manner would have worked as a welcome and flattering point of distinction between the new Boyles and the old Barry clan. Thus, notwithstanding the difference of five years, Alice's letters to her father and to her Verney friend are each consistent in revealing her preoccupation with being able to afford the signs and trappings of English civility. The reported variances in Alice's spending pattern seem to be directly calibrated to what she perceived 
to how she perceived her progress as mistress of Castle Lines, mediating around the challenges and embracing the opportunities which mark the different stages in her life story. It is also telling how Alice shapes and reconfigures the different personas represented in her letters, placing varying emphasis on her motherly role, her faith and her boil inheritance in accordance with the intended readership and in response to the circumstances of writing. I'd now like to wrap up with a few concluding remarks. In terms of measuring how Alice's 1639 letter was received, archival evidence indicates that Ralph and his father, Sedmund Verney, were both staying at their Covent Garden home in London in spring 1639. This meant that there was no need for Ralph to write to his father about Countess Barrymore's request for a tutor. Other sources suggest that Richard Barry did attend his grandfather's free school at Yall for a period. In 1643, following the deaths of the first Earl of Cork and the boy's father the previous year, Alice was forced to take complete charge of the second Earl of Barrymore and his three siblings, along with having to manage a war-torn and heavily encumbered estate. A provision had, however, been made in the first Earl of Cork's will, which assigned an allowance of £200 for the education and maintenance of Richard Barry up until he reached the age of 22. Several sources have also noted how, in 1645, Richard Barry's aunt, Lady Catherine Ranla, arranged for him to attend a private school run by the famous poet John Milton from his home at the Barbican in London. Somewhat more colourfully, Richard Barry followed in his maternal grandfather's footsteps by marrying and remarrying until eventually he had 15 children to his name. Together, all of those biographical details might suggest that irrespective of the environmental factors, Countess, Alice, Countess Alice's attempts to control her mad boy were futile. Yet, her diligence in maintaining epistolary contact with the Verney family would prove fortuitous for us here today. My recovery and rereading of Alice's letters highlights one of the ways in which locatedness mattered to the Boyle women. And in Alice's case, her writings attest to the importance of castle lines in providing her with a platform upon and through which she could express her English identity and fulfil her aspirations towards English civility. Today, the ruins of Castle Lines are a visible reminder of Alice's attempts to leave her imprint on the Cork landscape. I will let you decide whether or not you think her shopping spree was a success. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.